questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, and today we present the first of a two-part conversation with James Brian Smith. James is the author of The Good and Beautiful God and The Apprentice series. He's currently a theology professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, and serves as the director of the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. If you're acquainted with and are a fan of Henry Nouwen, uh, Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, you're definitely in for a treat with this conversation. As you'll hear, both James and Michael have a passion for discipleship and spiritual formation. And what you'll discover in their conversation is the distinct difference between the two disciplines. And now here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Jim Smith, thanks for taking time today. I'm glad that we finally had an opportunity to talk face-to-face. Indeed, indeed. You are a blessing in my life, and I'm so glad to spend some time with you. Well, and also with you, as they say in those liturgical (laughs) churches. Uh, I'm excited to unpack for our listeners some of your work and your thinking, but uh, I want to start with your story. Mm -hmm. Um, You did your seminary work at Yale, Mm -hmm. which is not the traditional evangelical route. So help me understand about how you uh, went to Yale, and then how you got from Yale to being a professor of uh, spiritual formation at Friends College, or Friends University in right. Kansas. Yeah, well, I was a, an undergraduate student with Richard Foster at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, and so Richard Foster was good friends with Henry Nowen, and so uh, when it was time for me to pick a seminary, I, um, Richard said, well, why don't you just ask Henry? You know, I mean, he's been at Harvard, he's been at Yale, he's been in the seminary world. So you just opened the white pages <clears throat> yeah, yeah, every now and Yeah, there it was. No, Richard gave me his address, and I wrote him a letter, and uh, and he wrote me back. And that was, I would I would later learn that was something he did. He he wrote letters back on a typewriter. I still have this, this letter. Wow. But basically, I asked him, you know, what seminary might be helpful to me in my spiritual growth. Now, I didn't use the term spiritual formation back then. Actually, Henry did in his letter. But as a as a Protestant evangelical, I was like, you know, discipleship and right. where do I grow in my life with God? And his answer in his letter was, uh, there's no seminary that will do that. So it's like, oh, that's encouraging, which is true. And what he said was seminaries really aren't designed the the way they're designed now. They aren't designed for that. But he suggested Yale Divinity School because he'd been there and he knew a number of uh, faculty that were still there. He said, these people will help you. And so I went there basically because of Henry. Uh, I had a terrible visit, oddly enough, to the to the place. I When I was there, I was like, I don't like this place at all. But Henry Nowen's endorsement was so strong, I went anyway. I'm glad I did because I ended up meeting my wife there. So that's, that's a great deal. It's, it, it was a great thing. And it was a, it was a great place for me at the time. I needed some stretching and uh, and it definitely was that. So uh, after a seminary, I returned to Wichita and was uh, serving in a local church. I'm a United Methodist pastor as well. So I was serving in a church, and then a job at Friends University came up as a chaplain slash professor. And so I, I moved into that role, and I got my, my doctorate from Fuller And during that time. And then little by little have moved into a full-time faculty position there. 
Um, but my heart's really also in ministry. It's in the church. So I'm sort of that, that, that balance of um, not just academia, but, but the church, because I believe, as Dallas Willard said, the church is still God's best arrangement mm. for his people. And, and I'm committed to that. I helped plant a church in Wichita, uh, Chapel Hill United Methodist Church, still a part of that church I preach there. So um, I find nourishment from being a part of the church as well as in the academy. Well, and when you speak of the academy or being an academic, um, you've obviously written books, I think 12, last mm-hmm. count, and uh, yet your academic focus is really on being a practitioner and doing the spiritual life. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. You ended up forming at Friends the Apprentice Institute, which right. is now known all over the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've always been interested. I mean, the, the thing that drives me, Michael, in my whole life is really helping people connect with God. That's if you say, what's the thing that gets me out of bed? What's my passion? What's that driving thing? Uh, the thing that I get most excited about is helping people somehow find a connection with God and through prayer, through the obviously the spiritual disciplines, but also through narratives, understanding who God is, um, engagement with the Holy Spirit, discernment, all that sort of thing. That, and that's what I get to do. I love my job because I get to work with um, young people, you know, the undergraduate students, and then with graduate students as well, and just to be a part of their journey, to say, uh, what can we read and talk about and learn together that when we, that you are going to walk away from that going, I feel more connected to God. So it's a beautiful thing. And the Apprentice Institute that we created, um, it's it's now in its 10th year, um, is is aimed at at doing exactly this, creating resources for people who want to grow deeper in their life with God. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that every day. And not only do you do an annual conference that's typically in the fall, but you also uh, offer certificate courses right. and a degree. Yeah, we have a you have an undergraduate degree, and so it's a first or second major, and so that's the 18 to 22-year-olds typically, some non-traditional with that. But that's a wonderful thing I teach in those courses. Then we have an adult um, certificate in discipleship. It's a two-year program with four residencies. And then a, a master's program, two-year master's program as well. It has residencies as well as online courses. So, yeah, it's it's a blast. I love what I'm doing, Michael. It's great. Yeah, I know you do. That's one of the things I love talking with you. Now, when you said discipleship, there again is that, you know, you called it discipleship. Henry Nouwen, uh, before Protestants, would have called it spiritual formation. That discipleship certificate really is a deep immersion into spiritual formation and walking with right. people then. And a lot of your writings have focused on that. But talk about, in your mind, is it just semantics, or is there a difference between discipleship and formation? Yeah, that's a great question, and it, there is a difference. Um, discipleship is really the method, and spiritual formation is the outcome. So th- everybody is somebody's disciple. That's chapter 8 of Dallas's uh, In the Divine Conspiracy. Like, y- you are somebody's disciple. Everyone is being spiritually formed. Everybody's being spiritually formed. So everybody's somebody's disciple, meaning who teaches you how to live your life? Who teaches you right, wrong? Um, what is the good life? Who's the good person? Who's really well off? Fundamental philosophical questions, but also... Uh, just basic questions of how do I live? And um, so everybody is somebody's disciple, usually our parents, like early on, uh, teachers, significant people, coaches, whatever your life is about. But we learn to do life from somebody. And Dallas Willard's point in that chapter in The Divine Conspiracy to say, who's 
who's the best teacher? Like, who's the best rabbi? Who's the best Jedi master? It's Jesus, <laughs> right? He's the smartest person ever lived. Mm. He's the second member of the Trinity. He created the universe and holds it together. He's so a pretty good carpenter, too. A good I carpenter, think. we assume. I haven't seen but, any of his work. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but but I've seen the body of his teaching, and I know him personally mm. in my life. So, so yeah, so Dallas's point is that you have to be someone's disciple, the best person to say, I want to be that. I want to, I want to enroll as a student of Jesus. And so that's discipleship, right? Mathetes, the Greek word in the New Testament. That's what Peter, James, and John understood. You can be my disciple. They knew what that meant. In the first century, it meant I'm going to arrange my entire life around this rabbi, what, what he teaches me, how he lives. And they even said, teach us to pray. They wanted, mm. they wanted to learn and be with him and be like him. So that's discipleship. I like apprenticeship. Um, and I learned that from Dallas because the word discipleship, particularly for evangelicals, has been a bit gutted. If you say, um, you know, what's discipleship? I mean, people think, well, I have a quiet time, you know, or I, I, I have a Bible reading plan. Right. Nothing's wrong with either one of those things. Those are great, right? But that's not discipleship. It's, not, it's not going anywhere, per se. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's wonderful practices, but it's really just your own personal piety. And even if you go to a church and say, what's your discipleship plan? The church will go, uh, most churches will say, um, we have Sunday school, we have small groups, we have... But again, is anybody teaching you how to arrange your entire life, like vocationally, as a parent, as a spouse, to say, how do I, I want to be his, te- his student, his apprentice? So apprentice is really a better word for us today because most people under- understand what that means. Right. And with all due respect to Donald Trump's television show, The Apprentice, right? <laughs> so, sorry, a lot of listeners are going to go, oh, that. Well, you remember, remember he fired people. But, but the idea of an apprentice is that you, there's someone who's better than you. And I'm going to learn how to learn from you in order to try to, as Dallas would often say, how would I live my life if Jesus were living it? Mm. Like for me, how would I be? I'm a college professor. How would Jesus be a college professor? How would, how, what was his, what was his teachings be like as a parent and that sort of thing? So that's what it is. I'm trying to apply everything about. I love, sorry to interrupt. That is a great question applying to whatever our situation is, not mm-hmm. what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do as uh, as a counselor sitting in my chair? What would Jesus do uh, in your role as mm-hmm. an airline pilot, as a school teacher? Yeah. And when, when you talked about The Apprentice, going back to my little intrusive joke, perhaps not funny, mm-hmm. about him being a carpenter, Jesus had to have an apprentice. Absolutely. So he didn't have these magical carpenter powers because he was divine, where he could just build something. He had to, because of the incarnation and his humanity, he had to sit under someone and learn carpentry. Absolutely, yeah. He had to, he had to do that, and, and that's just the natural process that we all, we're all living under. You know, one of the things that I, I found, this is, I mean, I'll probably step on some toes by saying this, but, you know, the, the WWJD bracelets that were so popular. Step away, step away. Sorry. <laughs> step on toes. <laughs> well, again, it's a well-meaning thing. People put those bracelets on because they were like, hey, you know, I want to just, I'm wearing this bracelet because I want to, throughout my day, think, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? And it's a really good question. The problem is, is that our entire this is a word you would know, your soul, right? That's your work. 
my soul, and that includes my body. See, Dallas would include body within right. my soul. So everything in me is actually aligned to not act like Jesus. So when I'm in the moment and I'm saying, what would Jesus do? It's too late. I, I, that, I want to ask the question, how would Jesus be? I want to, not just what he would do, but I want to become like him in all that I do so that that's the natural move, right? Because so, if I say, okay, I'm in, this, I'm in this situation, what would Jesus do right now? I've got to grit my teeth and pretend. But I want to become the kind of person that naturally is like him because right. I've been with him so long. Yeah, so this idea of indirection, instead of just trying to do what Jesus did, rather to become the kind of person that would do what Jesus did. Right, yeah. So let's jump into what I think is probably your best-known book, uh, Good and Beautiful God. Mm -hmm. And in that, I love it for several reasons, uh, in all of your writing, is you actually talk about God. There are very few Christian leaders, pastors, writers who actually speak deeply of God. They talk about Christianity, they talk about characteristics of God— but, but but you write and speak out of an overflow of your life with God. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing, is you, you introduce people to a God that is actually good and beautiful and embracing. But then out of all of your collective wisdom, you offer this this uh, this triangle. I always forget the name of it. I've taught on this. Triangle of Transformation. The Triangle of Transformation. And, and this, this is so simple in its conception and so profound and impossible in its execution, apart from the Spirit of God. Can you walk us through that, specifically this idea of instead of just I'll read my Bible every day and after 40 years, hopefully I'm a little bit you know, more like Christ, you can actually set your sights on becoming a certain kind of person. Right. Talk about that. The issue of formation is holistic, like it involves every aspect of our lives. And what I came, what I actually learned, Michael, through um, a, a long period of time, like I started writing The Good and Beautiful God 15 years before it came out, and I wrote and rewrote, and then I actually field-tested what became that book for four years. I had 25 people that journeyed with me for 32 weeks a year. Talk about an apprenticeship. Yeah, right. And so it was It was a different 25 every year. I did. This, they had to write an essay to get in. Like, we don't do that in the church, right? Hmm. But I wanted people who were really serious and motivated. And so we field tested for those four years. And the thing that was the most shocking to me, didn't see it coming, was that people's God narratives were so toxic. When I started the, the process, I thought, well, I'm just going to teach these people the disciplines. I'm going to, because, you know, I'd studied with Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline. I'll just teach them prayer, meditation, solitude, silence, fasting, you know, even if it's modern day fasting from the media, maybe different than food. But, you know, I'm going to teach them these practices within the context of this community, and they're going to be changed. And of course, that can, that does happen, right? But what I, what I'd learned is that, if your God narratives are bad, or I, I like the word toxic because it really shows many of them are. I mean, for example, um, a study done at Baylor years ago now, but it still I think it holds true. 38% of American Christians think God is an angry judge. That's nearly four out of 10 of Christians of different denominations, like across the board, not just you know liberal, conservative, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. Um, and don't you think that on a practical level that statistics is pretty low? I think it is. And most, most people in ministry I work with will say that it is probably low. But it was a pretty intense. It's like 
they think God is an angry judge who's watching every move and is poised to punish them when they fail. Not implicit, like if you if you probe around beneath the surface, that's what right. they think, but that like that's their stance. Right. He's a giant, unblinking cosmic stare. He's watching every move you make, every vow you break, every breath you take. That's Sting, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. We could riff on Sting. <laughs> we could riff on Sting. But that's that's the view, this giant cosmic stare of a god who's really not out for your good. He wants to get you. So, and, and then you get derivations. You get people like, well, I'm not sure he's that mean, but he's not out for my good, or I never please him, or probably probably the vast majority of people just think God's just disappointed in them all the time. Mm. And so when you have um, that great line in Divine Conspiracy where, where Dallas says, God's the most joyous being in the universe, and you read that and go, what? God's the most joyous being in the universe? Come on. He's little Little, little sentences like that yeah. from him just... They've changed me. They have the. He has the gift. Say that. that again. God is the most joyous being in the universe. Mm. Yeah. I once asked Dallas. I mean, because he has a plethora of those, and I said, well, I I try to improve because I don't want to. I would often say, Dallas, I, I'm always quoting you, and I feel bad. But if I don't, I'm plagiarizing. He's like, Well, if it's any good, James, it came from the Holy Spirit. You just use it. <laughs> and he would said, always call you James. <clears throat> he always called me James. But I, I said, um, But I mean, how do you do that? You have so many of these. You know, like we live at the mercy of our ideas. I, I can't say that better, right? God's the most joyous being in the universe. I can't say it. And he said, well, Jim, I, I, James, I, I actually pray for that. I pray that that the Holy Spirit will give me those because he knows. And, and this gets to where I think we're heading in the discussion is um, the idea of narrative and how crucial narrative is. And, and so it actually was, it was uh, I think, the eighth reading of chapter nine of the divine conspiracy. Cause I, I got to read that book when it came off the printer way back in 95, 96. Uh, it came out in 99. And but, the book was like a Trojan horse where it came out and there were certain people that were like, wow, you know, here's Dallas's work. That's finally uh, there. But, yeah. but it seems to have just kind of crept up on evangelicals. And now I hear people talking about it all the time because at least in my circles, uh, it feels like people have been hungry for that kind of a message. Yeah. But back to you, because you're talking about the narratives of Jesus. Yeah, right. No, and you're right, Michael. The book w- it was, well, one of the things is the book's just so hard to read. Is that That's the biggest problem with the divine conspiracy, is most people quit by the third chapter. And it is it is hard. It's really hard. And I get that. And I wish it, it wasn't. I think Renovation of the Heart is a little easier to read. And I give myself a little pat on the back because I actually helped edit that one mm. and pushed him to say, Dallas, make this a little easier. But um, yeah, yeah, it was the, the eighth reading of, of that ninth chapter, which is called A Curriculum for Christlikeness, where Dallas says, the first thing you must do if you're going to lead people in a curriculum for Christlikeness is introduce them to the good and beautiful God that Jesus knew. Mm, I love that. And that's that's where the title of the book came, The Good and Beautiful God. Because So I flat out stole that straight <laughs> from his sentence. But it was amazing because when I read that sentence, and I had been working and, and failing at this uh, this discipleship method, this uh, this curriculum for Christ likeness, and I, I literally called him up and I read the sentence. I said, "Dallas, you wrote this. Like the first thing you must do is introduce them to the good and beautiful God that Jesus knew." And uh, I said, "Did you mean that? You know how when you say something and you realize how stupid it is." As soon as you verbalize it, I mean, as soon as I, I say, I actually know that quite well. Yeah, I mean, I just like, did you mean that? And I was like, wait, he wrote it. Yes, he. And he went, well, James, yes, I did mean that. And I said, well, why did you just write one sentence? Because that needed pages. That needed 
15 pages of unpacking because that's so important. And so that's why um, I I shifted the focus in the curriculum, which is the first book, The Good and Beautiful God, to focus on our God narratives. Because what I saw from people is that they had these terrible views of God, like the ones we've talked about. He's an angry judge. He wants to get me. He's disappointed in me. And what I learned, Michael, is that if you teach people just the spiritual disciplines and their God views are toxic, they'll get worse. Mm. They'll get worse because they'll be using the spiritual disciplines or exercises, practice, what do you even call them? They'll use them to get the angry God a little less angry. Mm. Like, did you see how much I prayed? Yeah, it I becomes fasted for three transactional. Weeks. It's transactional. Yes, yeah, this this God, this relationship with God. He's mad. He is disappointed in me. Maybe if I spend blah 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 or go do a week of service or something, then he'll be less mad. It's a it's a complete abuse, really, of what the spiritual disciplines are supposed to be. So that's why the the focus on our God narratives became so central to me in formation. And, of course, that's a wonderful bridge connection with your work, which is in in the world of, of psychology, therapy, soul care, is saying, you know, what what's it going on in your head? Right. <laughs> it's crucial. How does, I'm, I'm preaching how does, to the choir right now. Yeah, how our life narrative impacts how we understand our God narrative and come with a toxic uh, understanding of him. So in Good and Beautiful God, you specifically talk about the narratives of Jesus, mm. the stories he told, uh, the way that he lived, the miracles that he performed, and how that pointed to the God that he knew. And isn't that the subtitle of Good and Beautiful God? Yeah. Uh, discovering... Falling in love with the God Jesus yeah, reveals. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, and, and well, the thing is about Jesus, he, he's, he's completely consistent in in everything that he says and does. That's the crucial thing, too, to realize. It's not just his words, but his actions. And as we often say, actions speak louder than words. So he's he's revealing the character of God in his actions. Let's just take a couple of actions. Um, he goes to the... He, he, uh, he sits down at a well, and a woman comes to go get water. Right? Famous story in John's Gospel, woman at the well. She's living in in an adulterous relationship. She's had several husbands. She's coming in the afternoon because she's ashamed. So there's this shame thing going on. I know that's in your world, right? Mm -hmm. So here comes this shame-filled woman, and Jesus, first of all, talks to her. He has a conversation with her. Well, that should never happen. A first-century rabbi would not talk to a woman. Second, wouldn't talk to a non-Jewish woman. She's a Samaritan, right? She's not. And then uh, wouldn't talk to a known sinner, so he's breaking all of the rules right there. And what he's doing is affirming her. He's accepting her. And he never tells her to shape up. He never tells her to get better. Uh, he never tells her God's matter. He just says, you know, I have this living, I have this water that if you drink it, you're never going to be thirsty again, which is a beautiful thing to say to someone who's going to draw water, right? Hmm. You're coming to get water because you need it and you're thirsty. That right. I actually have some water. And then he tells the truth of who she is. Like, uh, here's your situation. And instead of that exposing her to shame, it's like, this guy knows me and is not judging me. Like, he's he's validating my person. Mm-hmm. He, But he knows the junk. Like, he knows my mess. I mean, just in that single story. And the disciples don't get it. They're like, what is he talking to? What's the, what's the rabbi doing? So he's doing that, right? And so in everything that he teaches and does... 
And of course, obviously the prodigal son story, the most recognized of all Jesus' teaching. It's By the way, I learned years ago, it's the most preached upon passage every year. Hmm. Like, if, like what's the number one, if you walk into a sermon, what's the passage you're likely to hear a sermon on? It's, it's the prodigal son. So that's his most famous teaching. And what's that about? Once again, it's this outlandish story of a horrible son. I mean, we say it's a horrible, it's, it's really not about the prodigal son. It's about this prodigal father whose l- lavish love is unearned, unmerited. So his teaching, his actions, and I could give you 10 more stories, right? He's utterly consistent with this is who God is. You think he's mad. You think he's angry. You think he wants to get you. This is who he is. And then, of course, it culminates, obviously, on the cross, which is, as, as Balthazar said, the most beautiful thing the universe has ever seen is Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. which obviously it's also the ugliest thing the world's ever seen. Like right. If we saw a, a photograph of it, we couldn't look at it, but that's why artists can depict it, right? Cross is the most recognized symbol in the world, bigger than the Nike swoosh, right? mm-hmm. because that cross symbolizes this love that goes to every beyond, right? The yeah. most extravagant love in the world. So in, I'm, I'm thinking, um, and again, semantics are different authors, different writers, but what you've spoken of as the narratives of Jesus are really all a declaration and a statement through his life and his actions and his words of this is what my father is like. This is what yeah. God is like. And that's the good news. It's the great, it's the good news. I mean, John fourteen nine. Is is a really important verse. I mean, I, I really impress this upon my students, and, and that is, the disciples say to him, you know, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? And in this kind of exasperation, he says, John fourteen nine says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which is mind blowing, right? Yeah, we, we hear that all the time. Of course, yeah. <laughs> we're we're pastors and ministers, but it's like, huh? And why do we why do we miss that? Why do we forget that? Why do we Yeah. That just stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> yeah. It, it, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And and that's why the the Christ form, I use the term the Christ form because that includes everything about him, his his life, his teachings, every aspect of it, right? The whole story. Um that is beautiful, good and true and when we when you, no one ever looks at Jesus and goes, "I don't like him." Like even really jaded atheists who hate Christianity, like, say, Bill Maher, right? I heard Bill Maher on a, uh, after he did the Religious, you know, his documentary, Mocking. He loves religion. Jesus. <laughs> he loves Jesus. He really does. I mean, there's, a, there's this interviewer just finally exasperated. He just said, Bill, is there anything you like about Christianity? He goes, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. I was like, what? You know? Which which means he may be closer to the kingdom than yeah, right. me on a given day. <laughs> exactly, Yeah. So yeah, the the beauty of 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 Christ then that's still the thing that draws us. Your question is a good one though, Michael, and that is, how come we have such a hard time believing it? And I think it, it's because we project onto God. Um, I mean, that's projection, of course, in the area of psychology. You know, that's where I'm going to. And Feuerbach was very critical of Christianity, as was Nietzsche and Freud. And they were saying, well, what you do is we take the best in humanity and project it onto God. Actually, I don't think we do that at all. I think what we do is we project onto God uh, our parents like, like, or anybody who's, 
who's an authoritative figure in our life. And that's what happens with parents. Like parents, they're watching us. Hey, that was good. You get to have dessert. Uh, um, you, you, you didn't eat your peas. Go to your room. And, and coaches who, like you, failed that, go sit on the bench. Or teachers, like that was bad, but, you know, a, a C or an F on our paper in red ink. So we just think there's somebody who's a super judge. There's somebody who's a super parent a super coach, whatever. And they see everything. Like my parents, I can kind of fool them sometimes, mm. but this God, he sees everything and he knows everything about me, all my failings. And that God has to be disappointed in me. I mean, at best disappointed. And the Bible becomes a way to inspire us to do better. Yeah. As opposed to, to a pathway to show us what the father is like. Oh, exactly. And that's why, you know, one of the things you said earlier is that, I don't know that it's true, but I'll take your word that most folks aren't writing about God. You said that you know you really like the good meal for God's about God, and and here's this is something that I um, I may ruin you, Michael, by telling you this. You're, <laughs> you're going to be stuck with this, okay? And your listeners, I'm just going to warn you: if you're people who go to church and listen to sermons, I'm about to mess you up in a good way. I hope, okay. I asked a homiletics professor, that's a preaching, they teach preaching, right? A homiletics um, professor years ago, gosh, this was 25 years ago at least. If you're a homiletics professor, you hear sermons. That's what you do. You hear seminarians give sermons. He'd heard literally thousands of sermons, right? He has to, and he sits there and critiques them and that sort of thing. So I thought, well, I'm going to ask him the one question I want to ask. I said, what is the essential thing about an effective sermon? Like, this is, this is a sermon that does what it's supposed to do. And this is what this professor said. He said, a sermon is evaluated on how often it uses active verbs toward God. Where God, here, this is how he put it exactly. God is, a great sermon is where God is the subject of active verbs. Mm. Here's what he meant by that. An active verb would be, like, for example, and if just to fill out what he said, God's a subject of active verbs, meaning this would be a sermon about God forgives, God loves, God reconciles, God heals, right? Now, because the subject is God doing these things, and, and they're doing it for us, right? They're doing it for us. So I said, well, what if you say that's, do people do that? He goes, no. He said, that's the problem. They don't do it at all. I said, well, what is it that we're prone to do? And he said, it's most sermons are what we have to do for God. We're the subject. We're the the subject. Yeah, we got, we have to, six steps to being a better Christian, to being a better father, to being whatever, right? And so if you break it, and this is why I say it ruins you, because I can't listen to sermons now. I've never since that day I, I listen to a sermon, and I'm evaluating. I'm like, well, okay, where's the, where's the active verbs of God? Mm-hmm. And I hear a sermon where there's none. The whole sermon might have been some psychological advice or you need to pray more. I don't know what it is. But I walk away from that going, well, I just I need to do something more or write. Um, but when God is the subject of active verbs, this is the key. You love that God. Yes. You fall in love with this God who loves, forgives, heals, reconciles, dies for you, right, the cross. So when God is this, that's that's gospel. We're preachers of the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news isn't you don't have to do anything. That's the good news. And it's so compelling. Yeah. That God, that's the good and beautiful God. Yeah. That's the God I want to, you know, be with and fall in love with. And But let, let me flip that a little bit because... 
this was something that, you know, our mutual friend Paul Young taught me about. Um, Because I asked him why in the shack he has that recurring phrase where Papa says to Mac about Mac and other people, I'm especially fond of you. I love that, right? I felt really drawn to that. But it's a unique kind of phrase, right? So I said, Paul, why, why why did you have Papa saying, I'm especially fond of you? And he said, because if I say God loves you, God's a subject and you're just maybe the recipient. But you can still think God loves you and in in a in a funny way that you're still a disaster that he's putting up with. Like well he loves me because he's this God. He's right. Right. But when God says, I'm especially fond of you, the subject is now you. And and that's I think the profundity of that statement, I'm especially fond of you, is precisely that because you can still sort of say, John three sixteen, God so loved the world and still think he's somehow really doesn't like you. He loves you, maybe, because he's God and he has to, right? And he sent Jesus to take your beating and all that. But he's but when you say when you have God the Father say, I'm especially fond of you, there's the healing. Yeah. There's the good news. Now I want to be with that God. Right. And so that's why I think narratives are so crucial in formation. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.